Welcome to the Wags of SCI podcast, where we discuss life, love, and caregiving after spinal cord injury. Hosted by Elena Pauly and Brooke Paget. Both of our partners are quadriplegics. And after connecting online in 2017, we began the advocacy and support group WAGS of SCI, which is an acronym for Wives and Girlfriends with Spinal Cord Injury. We know firsthand the challenges that come with living this lifestyle. And our mission is to spread education, awareness, and positivity from our unique perspectives. So join us each week as we tackle deep discussions around balancing life as a caregiver and a lover to someone with a spinal cord injury. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Wags of SCI podcast. Here we go. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to the Wags of SCI podcast with your hosts, Brooke Paget and Elena Pauly. Today, we have an awesome guest for you, a fellow caregiver. But first, before we get into that, we want to send a big thank you to our sponsors of this episode, as always, Robin Wishart of Wishart Brain and Spine Law and her team. Uh, They are the official advocates of the WAGS of SCI community, and they are there to provide you with help and assistance in any way you need as far as anything from insurance, benefits, paperwork, helping with home support, doctors, specialists in your area, and just basically resources. So if you have a question for Robin or need some advocacy or feel stuck in any which way in anything that you're doing, please visit our website, wagsofsci.com and click on the legal resources tab. And you can also visit her direct website brainandspinelaw.com. Super easy if you want to learn more about Robin and what she does for the spinal cord injury community. Also a big shout out to Rolling in Paradise, a disabled owned and operated VA approved vendor focusing on wheelchairs, hand cycles, sport wheelchairs, off-road mobility, shower wheelchairs, lifts, stands, power assists, and accessories. It's owned by a fellow WAG, Annalisa, and her quad partner, John, and their website is rollinginparadise.com. So if you need anything as far as adaptive equipment or anything else I just listed, please email them and tell them that the WAGs of SCI sent you. So today's guest we have, like Brooke had mentioned earlier, is a fellow WAG of SCI and caregiver just in time for Caregiver Awareness Month. Today we have Angela DeChico with her book, Better Than Before, One Couple's Journey After a Tragic Accident. In an instant, your world can turn upside down. Don't we know it? What happens after a tragic accident? Family ties are tried. A marriage already on shaky ground is tested to its limits. Better than before is an account of a couple's a couple's world who's changed in a single phone call. Told by a wife and caregiver, Better Than Before documents one woman's autobiographical journey from the shock of her husband's motorcycle accident to renewed faith, a stronger marriage, and a newfound confidence in herself. So welcome today, Angela, and we are so grateful to have you on sharing and taking the time to write this beautiful book to encourage and support other caregivers in the community. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here and giving the opportunity to help others through through my experience so that it uh, is worth something. That's uh, that's that's what my husband and I agreed after it happened that we wanted our goal was to help others. 
Absolutely. Now, before we get into this, can you give us a little background about who is Angela and who is Arthur? Um, your story of who you are and what happened. Uh, well, I am the Italian grandmama. <laughs> I have uh, my Italian background very, very close to me always. Uh, I also have uh, on Facebook the Italian Grandmama's Guide community. So you can check that out too for fun recipes. And um, I married Arthur late in life. We got married, uh, he was in his 60s and I was 50. And we just thought this will be great. We're going to go riding into the future together, traveling and enjoying each other. He has five kids. I have three. So between us, we have a very large family, eight kids and nine grandkids. And uh, he was a super active man before his accident, just incredibly a giver, a helper, always ready to do something for, for everyone. And, um, you know, my, I'm, I'm just a devoted to my family and my kids and my grandkids. And I've been writing, really writing my whole life and thrilled to finally uh, create this book. My other passion is, and uh, the other thing that fills my soul is acrylic art. So I do abstract paintings as well. Wow. That's awesome. That's lovely. Lovely. Such a rich, beautiful culture the Italians have. So thank you for being here. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So one of the one of the first questions that I feel a lot of women in our community jump into when they join our Facebook, the Wags of SCI uh, private discussion group are they ask other women, did you ever think about leaving your partner when they had their accident? And if no, then what made you stay? Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, and, and after reading the book, <laughs> people have come up to me and asked me, why did you stay? <laughs> um, yes, yes, I absolutely, I did not in the beginning. It was just, it was simply not in my, um, in my frame of mind. You know, I said to him the night of the accident, you know, we're the A team. We're going to, we're going to work through this together. You know, it never occurred to me to leave, but during the journey in the hospital, when he was on drugs and became a completely different human being, uh, our relationship was really challenged. And he was calling his ex-wife <laughs> multiple times. And he would uh, ask me to bring water bottles. And then he would ask her to bring water bottles. And every every time I said I would bring them, I got to the room and they were already there. And his ex-wife <laughs> had brought them. So we had a, I mean, there were a lot of challenges there. And then there was, there was a crazy point where, um, his daughter had a meltdown on me and that's in the book. And he actually asked me for a separation while he was in the hospital. So my, <laughs> one of my kids said to me, mom, he has given you every reason to walk away and nobody would blame you if you did. So it was, you know, definitely at that point, I really didn't know if we were going to stay together, not because I wasn't willing, but because he, he was pushing me away pretty much. So at that point I, I decided, uh, well, I have a big five bedroom house that I'm not going to need. I'm just going to sell the house and just sort of started to move in a direction that, uh, could possibly be a single again. Um, and that's, that's kind of where we, where we got to during that journey. 
so I, I, I get it though. I understand it. And I know the divorce rate is high. Um, the other, the, the other thing, um, let me interject here. The other thing that happened to me was the night uh, the morning of his, um, uh, surgery, the night after the accident, there was a nurse in the room with me and she looked at Arthur's chart and then she put it down and she looked at me and she said, I think I may know something about what you're going through. Her husband was a paraplegic at the T11, the same location that my husband's was, and they had been married for 25 years. So I already knew that it was possible. And that was, that was just an example for me of what could possibly happen. Wow. That was so meant to be, hey, that's those, those little things that happen kind of seemingly out of nowhere, those little instances where you just, you get that little bit of hope and that peek into quote, the new normal, like they say, I'm, I'm really, really glad that you're open and honest about the struggles that you guys had during those times, because, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I always notice, especially with myself, with everybody in the private group that talks about those first few months, those first few years and the struggles they have, it's never in my view, about the paralysis itself or the injury itself. It's always about something else that hasn't been dealt with or projecting on somebody else or expressing emotions that that either of you don't know how to deal with. It's never actually about the injury. So I, for myself, do you, would you agree with that? You know, I hadn't ever parsed it out that way, but I think that you are right. And in fact, uh, I said to a friend of mine at one point, I said, you know, he is my husband first and a paraplegic second. So what you're saying is really true. The the separation and, and all of the chaos we went through really didn't have a lot to do with the paraplegia. That, that I, was fine. I could handle that. Uh, ex-wives and family drama was... <laughs> I was not prepared to handle at all. And we had only been married five years. The accident happened the night before our fifth wedding anniversary. So that was another fun uh, day of, yes, being, it was, it was a very strange day. I kept thinking, why am I not at the beach? I don't understand why I'm not at the beach. My mind refused to grasp this tragedy that had just happened. But what, but what happened was as we went along, the things that we had not resolved in our marriage became more prominent. So that's why I'm, I'm agreeing with what you said, and I hadn't considered it before. We still had issues to resolve in our relationship. And putting me first uh, was an issue prior to, to the accident. And so it shouldn't have come as any surprise that he did not put me first after the accident. So that was really something, one of the big things we had to work out, you know, who's your priority in your life? You know, is it me? Is it your kids? Is it your ex-wife? Is it, you know, who, who is the priority here? Interesting. That's really, that's really a great um, revelation and something that we try because, you know, during the first little while, these accidents, everyone's in just survival mode. They're just barely like we always like to call it treading water mode where you feel like at any second you could just be sucked under. Right. And there's nothing really big that can be accomplished during 
those times except for barely surviving. And it's so hard for us being in the position that we're in and now six years later after, you know, moderating the group, running the group, because we hear these stories from these women that are one month in, two months in that are considering leaving because they can't take it anymore. And it's hard because it's like, you can't really judge what it's going to be like until you get out of this survival mode of living, just barely trying to keep above water. It's it's something that needs to ride out, ride out. The, the course needs to be shown and big decisions. It's, it's just, well, for, for myself anyway, and I know for Elena, it's hard to make those big decisions. And so I, you know, you're talking about all of the family involvement and the, and the family drama that, that happens during this time as well. It, it was always very interesting for me. Um, and I know many other women, out there, many other wags like this, where the families just started to behave erratically and dramatically. And, you know, this is a time when you need the family support more than ever, because this isn't really about them. This is about your partner. This is about his support system. And, you know, you see this drama happening and you're just like, what is going on here? Like, we need to, to band together and support this person. And so at the end of the day, I thought it was it was just very interesting when you were discussing this because I'm like, wow, haven't we all had a little bit of this kind of family drama happening around this accident and those people also being in survival mode and showing not really their true colors, but how people behave when they're under stress? Yes, yes. When I was writing this book, the uh, my um, writing coach, who is also a life coach, she said to me, People think that when tragedy strikes, families bound together, she said, but they are more likely to blow apart. And I would have liked to know that during that time when I was wondering, what the heck is going on with you people? Why, <laughs> what is going on? Why this drama? You know, this, this horrible thing just happened. And I kept thinking, like, why are you being so mean to me? <laughs> so... I didn't expect it. Honestly, I didn't expect it. And thank goodness for my own children who showed up and their spouse is 110%. I mean, just, they really kept me going for sure. And you're right, we're in survival mode. You know, I was asked to make a decision, as I'm sure most of us were, within a week, where do you want him to go to rehab? what are you talking about? <laughs> He's got a broken back. He's not ready to be released from the hospital. I didn't understand that as long as his blood pressure was fine and his heart was stable and, you know, all of these, all of these things were in good working order, he would be released. And I had no skill set to pick a rehab for him. And in the middle of this, you know, he's pushing me away and, and, and being unkind so at one point, at, you know, at a certain point after a few weeks of this, and I thought, well, this is a lot of work for somebody that's being asked to remove herself from this situation. You know, why, why should I help? Why should I continue to show up? And so that I, I got through with a lot of prayer. I don't know how anybody else gets through, but I got through with a lot of prayer, a lot of friends, a lot of support. Um. You talk about your husband and how he was pushing you away and, you know, you would have a lot of wisdom regarding how you handled that, how to get through that as a couple. Would you agree that, or, or what's your perspective on 
mm, it's his responsibility to get through that, not yours, and deal with that. What would you say to other women that are going through this? Because I know it's very common. Did you feel like you were responsible for helping him through these times? And and did you feel powerless or did you feel like he took more self-responsibility or self-accountability for what he was going through and the, and how he was pushing you away emotionally? Did you feel like you had to solve that for him or did you feel like he had to work it out himself? Um, there is a a piece of all of that in there. In the beginning, I felt really strongly that I had to, and I actually continued to feel that, that, um, I needed to advocate for him at, at one point, someone, uh, who had already been through the program and had had a bad accident told him they had to advocate, advocate for himself. And what he, my husband did was took that so personally and then took it to the extreme. So then he told me I'm making decisions about my own medical care rather than him and I making decisions about his medical care together. So that was the beginning of me kind of being left out um, of this loop here. And, and, and the thing was, I didn't know what was wrong with him. I didn't know until later that it was the drugs that were contributing to his um, erratic behavior and his mind. He was having hallucinations. He was having all kinds of things going on. But again, that's when I didn't know that. Nobody explained that the medication could do this to you. So it was one more thing that I felt blindsided. But I was powerless over it. I couldn't, I couldn't help a man who would not let me help him. So he had, he was bound and determined. And I talked to the social worker, I talked to the doctors and I said, he he is not capable of making these decisions himself. And they all said he was of sound mind and body. So he was, he was able to make decisions on his own accord. I did what I could. And, and basically what I kept continued to do was show up. I continued to show up. And that's, that's a huge part of it is, is being able to show up, but having the strength, the time and your own mental health to be able to show up and be there alongside your partner. I I was sort of reflecting as you were speaking about this, um, the first few weeks of, um, being in rehab with my partner and you sort of get to a space where you're, you know, you're sitting there and you just think to yourself, all I have is time. That's all we have is time. You're just waiting for inflammation to go down from the spinal cord. You're waiting for a proper system with OTs, PTs to come in and help your partner create a new quality of life, whatever that looks like and start doing rehab. And it's a very surreal space to navigate as you just sit there, right? You just sit there. How many movies can you watch? How many conversations can you have or books can you read or coloring books? Um, so, you know, it's, it's a very, uh, it's an interesting space to navigate. That's for sure. So I just want to ask you, um, Angela, what made you write this book and how long after your partner's spinal cord injury, did you take pen to paper and sit down and get these thoughts out on paper? <laughs> yeah, it was one of my coping skills during all of the chaos. I, I have been writing and journaling since seventh grade. So I've been used to pouring myself out. And I knew that if I did not do something with these vast emotions that I was having, that I would have a nervous breakdown or worse. 
So I poured a lot of it down on paper. And I remember I wrote, I'm writing this down so that I can remember all the details. So it wasn't just emotions that I was pouring out, but it was also, can you believe this happened today? And this happened, the nurse said this, and then his daughter said that, and he said this. And so a lot of it was already documented uh, on in, in my journal. And the other thing I did, do something else. I knew a friend who did um, uh, core energetics. I don't know if you've heard of it, but I really highly recommend it. And it is a physical way of releasing emotions, processing the emotions through your body. I was incapable of doing anything on my own without somebody saying, do this. I didn't have the head space. I didn't have the brain space. So this, this, this friend who was actually um, a core practitioner she, you know, she would ask me what was going on. And then she would have me do things like, you know, I want you to, you know, shout that woman's name out. And I want you to like, pretend you're stomping on her, you know, and I want you to like, hang your head down. And, and, you know, I want you, you know, she would just give me physical things to do. It was, it was fabulous. And it just helped me stay sane enough to get up and do it all over again. Wow. Day. So, so can you get into that a little tiny bit more? So, uh, so what is the premise? Like what is the entire belief system of what is core energetics for anybody who's looking? Because we get this a lot. We get a lot of women saying, I just don't know what to do for myself. We even have a self-care group on Facebook, the Wags of SEI self-care group. And a lot of women are coming, you know, to the group asking each other for advice of ways to release emotions or to allow emotions to flow through, especially when you are sort of in a stagnant space waiting on doctors for more advice or the next step. So can you just explain to anybody who has absolutely no idea what this process is that you are speaking about? What is core energetics? I I wish I could be more eloquent about it. All I can describe is my experience. I know they have a mission statement and and people could look that up. And I know they they describe it a whole lot better than I do. But, But basically, it is a practitioner working with you wherever you are in your life and whatever you need to do. So probably it was a little bit like combining... Um, a physical, let's say you're doing uh, yoga or meditation or body groove. So it was a little bit of that, a little bit of body movement. It was a little bit of being in a therapy session. You know, for 20 minutes, we talked about what's going on with you. And then the practitioner would take that information and she'd say, okay, here's what I want you to do today. Sometimes it was lie on your back, put your feet up in the air and let all of that energy drain out of your feet, kick your feet, kick your feet, hold them up in the air. You know, it was about unplugging the energy from wherever it needed to be unplugged in my body, keeping the energy moving wherever it was stuck. And so it was something different every single time that I worked with her. And I think that was the beauty of it. Plus, you can also do it on your own. Once you learn some of these skills, you know, you can do that on your own. And both parts were so helpful to me, just being able to talk to somebody who was not biased about what was going on and, and be, you know, having permission to like stop my feet and yell and scream and curse at this woman that was giving me heartache, you know, this ex-wife who was really giving me heartache, but it wasn't her. Me, you know, my husband was inviting the situation in, but I had to process all of it. And core energetics just gave me a way to do that. 
Um, I, I really do highly recommend it. I highly recommend that, that uh, you look it up. I've also done a weekend workshop with them where they can dive really deeply into particular issues like from your childhood that you may have. And I think that's the other thing we bring with us into these situations, our past, whatever that might be. So, you know, um, whatever sensitivities I may have, bringing into this situation, you know, abandonment issues, for example, which, which I have, well, you're pushing me away. So that's only making me feel abandoned it's, it's, and that, that created an insecurity in me, you know, about what is, you know, what's going on, you know, what, why are you choosing her over me? I don't understand. And it really wasn't like that. It appeared that way to me, right? His, he, he completely denies that that was the case. His, um, his actions (laughs) said that me. <laughs> well, you know what? And Brooke and I talk about this fairly often on our episode podcasts is there's a few things here. So first it's, I truly believe that new trauma brings up the old trauma if you don't have it healed or dealt with. And, you know, and that becomes, it kind of slaps you across the face when you least expect it as well. That's why it's so important to do things like core energetics or get to know yourself and heal through your traumas or acknowledge them or bring awareness into these spaces so that they can't just sort of creep up in the most inconvenient times, like somebody having a spinal cord injury. And, um, the second thing I've, I've learned, and I know Brooke has too, and many women in our community is that, it's this spinal cord injury. Yes, it happens to your partner, but by you being the observer and the person that's sitting there beside your partner, taking on the extra shifts of a caregiver when they don't show up or being the hands um, that pass everything to your partner or, um, you know, help your partner all the time is that you are still plugged into that energy beside them. And it's being able to, It's being able to individualize your role as you are your own person. You are not just there to be the help that I found extremely powerful through this journey through spinal cord injury is that you're not just the help. And that this was, this was the reason for us beginning WAGS of SEI, for example, was that when you, when somebody has a spinal cord injury, a lot of the time, and a lot of women can report this, that when you are in the hospital or rehab, of course, the patient-centered care is around the patient who just sustained a spinal cord injury. But then you're, you're kind of looked at as a nurse, like, oh, hey there, thanks for passing that cup of water or help put on the pressure stockings or <laughs> help pass the medication. Not necessarily the other human being in the room who is absorbing all of this trauma as well. So that's a, I really love that you brought that up. I know a lot of women are consistently looking for other ways of feeling seen and heard and not just the caregiver. It is. It really is a huge issue. And I, I first of all, I really like what you said about new trauma brings up old trauma, and I think that that was that is really true. And a positive spin on that, as my husband and I talk about now, is we were brought together for a reason. And when when you're with uh, each other in a situation like this, you can blow apart or you can heal, right? So I think part of our journey is is healing our our childhood issues, both of us that we brought to the 
to our marriage to begin with. So we're given the opportunity to work on that. And yes, I, I, f- I felt in some ways like I wasn't seen or heard, definitely not heard when I was there. I walked and, and I was also a nurse while I was there because I would walk into the room and my husband's sheets would be soaking wet and he'd be lying in them. His shirt would be wet because he, he was having fevers and night sweats. I would go into the linen closet and get the sheets out and then track somebody down who could help me change the sheets. So the roles were not clearly delineated for sure. Even now, seven years after the accident, I will have to remind my husband, hey, buddy, I am not your nurse. <laughs> I am your wife first. I am your caregiver. But let's not, for a minute, take me for granted. I'm not paid to be your nurse. I'm not your paid help. Yeah, that's just, that's really, really special advice. I I wish that I would have listened to this <laughs> podcast and advice when I was uh, going through the motions for the first year and a half and trying to sort all this sort all of this stuff out, um, which is part of the reason why we do this podcast is as a resource so that women don't have to feel um, well can just get some guidance because you know like we were talking about earlier when you're in survival mode you can't really guide yourself that easily it's just it's so hard and so when someone like yourself who has been there done that says stuff like this it's just it's it's so valuable so so thank you for saying that um i i wanted to go back to just a little bit more detail about um just how things get presented to you and even the title of your book you know it says it all and the attitude that you have about you know when things when when things go sour and when these tragedies happen to you they show you what needs to be healed and just for myself personally, I found throughout this journey that adopting that attitude, kind of shifting from being a victim, a victim of the circumstance to having this happen to teach you something so you can learn and become a richer person. We we posted a quote um, or a little statement. We like to post, post little statements on our private group. And this was on our self-care group that we have on Facebook the other day that was, what if the situation you're navigating right now is happening for you, not happening to you. And it was just that statement just to like kind of facilitate conversation and get people commenting and thinking about it within themselves. And it's just interesting because, you know, we're doing this interview with you this week and, you know, your book is kind of titled that way and your attitude in general is very much self-accountability, getting out of victimhood and realizing that this these situations happen for your own growth and for to make you a better person, but also being able to add that to your relationship now on both ends. And I think people don't think about that enough, for sure. Like, I, it's one of my things in, in the group where I just, I wish people would start shifting out of the, why is this happening to me? I can't handle this anymore. I'm done with this kind of stuff. I can't deal with this and start thinking, okay, how can I learn more about myself through this and my reactions to this? And how can I process these things better so that I can become a better person? Um, so yeah, I, I just wanted to add that because um, it's something that really, really was life-changing for me. It really is a mental switch from, you know, from not being a victim 
And it's easy to be a victim. It's easy. I mean, my husband, people ask me all the time how his mental state is, how his emotional state. I think he handles this better than almost anybody would, certainly better than I would if the situations were reversed. And the irony, the ironic thing is one of the things he was worried about was that I wasn't going to be a good caregiver because of the the funny stories my kids told him about <laughs> when they were growing up. Their their dad took them every every time they had to go to the hospital. It was never me. Blood and guts were not my thing. So rising to the occasion, but that's the other piece of it. We were only married five years. And what my husband didn't know about me is that I always rise to the occasion. Always. Now he knows that about me. So for me, I was willing to do whatever I needed to do. He did not understand that. And and I think getting those, again, talking about those roles, I think getting those roles clear made a big difference. You know, that when we were, we were separated for 13 months um, altogether because he had a lot of setbacks. He was in and out of the hospital. He had his... His uh, hardware came undone, loosened, which never happens. And so he had to have a surgery. And then he had MRSA in his spine. And every all of the hardware in his back had to be taken out. And he had to be, it was crazy. He had to be pumped with medication. Yeah, the doctor told him if I hadn't taken him to the, to the doctors within 24 hours, he would have been dead. And they removed everything. He had to lie there for a week, immobile, and then they... They put everything back in again. So there were a tremendous amount of setbacks for us. And yeah, it's really easy to fall into that victimhood. But the title of the book came from my prayers. I just kept praying, God, what's what's the next step? What do I do? I don't know what to do with this. And and when we would we would have these horrible things going on in the hospital where um, you know, he would he would say something that felt very cruel to me or I felt dismissed. Uh, and I would leave and I would say, oh, I'm so done. I'm not going back. I'm done. I'm getting in the car. I got my keys in my hand. And I heard this voice, go back, go back. And it was like there was a magnet propelling me back into that room. And the truth was, um, for me, it felt like I'm, I am a Christian. So for me, it felt like it was the Holy Spirit talking to me. And I kept hearing, hang in there. It's going to be better than it was before. Hang in there. And that's where the title of the book came, Better Than Before. And it has. It has shifted our relationship. You know, we've been able to work on those issues we didn't get to work on before. And he's been able to see me in a a better light. And, And as an advocate for him, you know, as someone who shows up and someone who's very strong, you know, um, doesn't, and doesn't easily give up. But, but I remember leaving the room and I don't know if anyone else experienced this because I don't know if anybody else, you know, had the angry spats that we had, but I would leave the room and I would think in his eyes, they were so sad they were just so sad. And I just thought, you know, I can't leave him like that. I can't leave him. He has lost everything, you know, no matter what he's doing to me. I just kept going back and showing up. There were times I took off. There were times, um, yeah, I talk about it in the book. You know, I took a few days off here and there. I took a week off. Um, so 
So I'm, I'm, I'm not a glutton for punishment, that is for sure. But I really did feel called to hang into this relationship. And I should also give you a little bit more background about what was going on in my life. I was working full time at the time. I, I took several weeks off from work, but eventually I had to go back. At one point, he said he was no longer helping me with the mortgage because he didn't live at home anymore. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Because his, yeah. resi- his residence now was the hospital or rehab. Yes. 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 And then he said, well, when I leave here, I'm getting an apartment in Baltimore. I said, what in the heck are you talking about? He was really crazy. And so I I needed to go back to work full time to support myself. But I also was living with my mother. She's uh, she was about I don't know. She was in her 80s at the time and she had uh, some dementia. So I was not only caregiving with my husband, driving back and forth one way, an hour to an hour and a half one way. I was also taking care of my mom at home and making sure that she was okay, and making sure that she was fed and making sure that she had what she needed. So it, it, I can't even begin to describe for you what it, how stressful that time was. Um, and I'm so grateful for the support, the friends that showed up for me, the family that showed up for me. I had one man, I went to one of my fellowships, one of my spiritual fellowships. And you said it earlier, the focus is on the patient. And we get that. We get that. But this man came up to me and hugged me. And he said to me, how are you doing? And I, I just could have cried. You know, there was somebody that was asking just about me, just about my well-being. And we all need somebody like that in our lives that takes the focus off the patient and puts some of the focus back on us. Because as you said earlier, we are also, the accident happened to us. It didn't just happen to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, When my partner Dan had his accident in Cuba while we were on vacation, we were transferred back home in a tiny little emergency aircraft and stayed here. Now, my mom also had brain surgery and had lived with Parkinson's for quite a few years. So I was her power of attorney as well. And she lived four hours away. So while I was going to school at that time, we had to sell our home and my university was still about an hour and a half drive each way. So I was going to school, had to take on a serving job on, on the weekends and evenings, become the power of attorney for my mom who just passed away this April actually, and be a caregiver for my partner, Dan, when caregivers would not show up. So I can relate to you a little bit, a little bit. I would say you can relate a lot. (laughs) And, you know, and it's, it's one of those things I now, and I think about this pretty well every day since my mom has passed and just sort of seeing the trajectory of how everything sort of like played out and how things happened. And, you know, Brooke can attest to this. I was very, very stressed because one of the things that I feel like we learn now in hindsight, is that self-care piece. And I kept on saying to myself, well, I just don't have a choice. And I just, I, this is just the way it is. And I didn't have, I didn't have energy for myself. I was always, always stressed out, always running around from one to the next, to the next, to the next, grab a bite here. If I could grab something, um, 
And at one point, my mom actually stayed with us this past September. So I had... And she underwent um, electric shock therapy treatments, about 18 of those in one month. And every time she underwent one of those treatments, she would be dropped off at my home, a two-bedroom apartment. So I had my partner, who was in university, needing help to to transfer on the couch for his night classes, and my mother in the other room saying, I need you to come in here and pick up the straw that just fell on the ground. So, you know, and again, it was presented. I always see these situations as they happen for a reason there's an opportunity here but you don't see them when you're in it because you really are in survival mode and you're just trying to say you know once i pick up the straw or once i do this last thing then i'll sit down or but the what happens is it keeps on rolling like a tumbleweed there's another thing there's another thing there's one more thing there's another thing and then you don't and then before you know it at least with myself i could feel very resentful you know, the night nightfall would come and I would be so tired and I would think, well, I didn't even get a chance to do anything I needed for myself that now I'm becoming angry about this. And I was because you can't think properly, right? When you give it all away to everybody else that you just don't have that space to collect your thoughts. And this is a huge conversation piece in our community where... <clears throat> The displacement of having a spinal cord injury makes you feel like you're displaced because you are now your partner who's there with you, helping you, helping with chores and grocery shopping and taking out the trash and cooking meals and cleaning the house and taking the dog out or the kids can no longer do these things. So what happens is you're taking on a second, third, fourth job while still performing the way that you were at the rate that you were performing beforehand. And I want to say that I feel that there's a lot of, you know, we have two groups of women in this community. Ones that say, I am not a caregiver, even though they are, they don't want to be, they don't want to be classified as the caregiver because they don't want to make their partners maybe feel bad. And they just perform. They still continue on with, with these jobs of caregivers, the unpaid spousal caregivers. Um, and there's the other group of women that will openly say, okay, wow, I can't believe I've been put in this position by the government that doesn't pay spousal caregivers across the globe. This is a very, very common situation to be put in, but I still do it because I love my partner. And you're floating. You're basically just survival floating around until your partner gets to be either strong enough with a spinal cord injury that they can once again contribute to the things that you need help with. And that's a huge, that's a human, very realistic thing to say is I just don't have enough time to do everything right in amongst the self-care for yourself and self-care looks very different for different people, whether it's a cup of tea or just going outside and going for a quick 10 minute walk or breathing or whatever you need to do is the reality is it's not that that caregivers don't have time. It's just that you mentally don't have the time to prepare yourself to do the self-care. So you can't even, you can't even really enjoy it because you're thinking about all the things you have to do. Yes. And I think that that's part of a bigger conversation about women in general, that we do tend to put other people first naturally, I think, and I am generalizing, but it's certainly the women that I know. And so I think that's part of, of, you know, a culture 
you know, men will go out and play racquetball and tennis and go to the gym. And, you know, I, I don't know. I think they're conditioned more to do that. And we're, we're not. And so I did, I learned, but I learned long ago about self-care. So I feel like I already had a little bit of skill set going into it. Like I would still try to meditate in the morning. I do write about that in the book. I, I still tried to take five or 10 minutes. I did try to take that cup of tea. There was so much to do that you are absolutely right. Like I was going all day and I would just tumble into bed completely wiped out and exhausted. But I would then I would do things like core energetics or go out to dinner with a friend. You know, I made it so that I didn't have to go to the hospital or the rehab wherever he was every night. You know, I would have, okay, it's not my turn. This person said they were going to go on that night. I can have a night off. You know, I had friends that would that would take a turn going up or some of his kids. And that gave me enough time to recharge that I could go back and do it. I wasn't ever fully charged ever. That didn't come for years later, but enough that I could go back and do it the next day and be able to function again. Because if if we could all realize that if we fall apart, there is nowhere else to go. So if we don't feed ourselves and take care of ourselves, we are going to have not one, but two problems on our hands. Who is going to take care of our husbands if we get sick? That's right. And that's a big piece of why, how America treats spousal caregivers. And secondly, the crisis in caregiving through not only pandemic, but in general. And you're totally right. And that is something that we will always advocate for is providing resources, having shared understanding, like through your book that other women can read and feel that they are seen and heard. And it's okay to discuss these things openly because our government will very gladly take all of your work, all of your energy without supporting you with benefits or pay as a caregiver. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's uh, one of the things that we advocate very aggressively on is um, just caregiver caregivers knowing their worth and knowing and just realizing that you've been brainwashed by corporations, government, society to believe that you are selfish for seeking time for yourself, especially in this lifestyle. It gets kind of handed to you where it's just like you know, a lot of these women just feel like they can't take a break and just so much responsibility put on women's shoulders because, you know, you know, like you said earlier, this is a bigger conversation, but 75% of caregivers are women. And that is definitely taken advantage of. We just did a post the other day about the economic value of caregivers, and this is from a 2017 study, but it was over $470 billion dollars. And that's based on 41 million caregivers at 16 hours of caregiving per week. So that is doesn't even cover, in my opinion, you know, the half of it, right? Um, and so women don't realize that, like our whole society, like you were saying earlier, that they've they've been trained that it's they've got to take on all these hats and do everything while still maintaining a smile and their composure. And they want people wonder why there's so many prescription pills being handed out to women specifically. And um, I'm, I'm really glad that you 
are open and honest about all of what you are saying and, you know, how you've been there, done that, you're working on yourself and just how important it is to just say, you know what, don't just do it later, do it now, work on yourself now, especially when you're in the thick of it. And when you're really struggling, that is the time to just be like, okay, I need this for me. I need this time out. I need this relaxation, even if it's 10 freaking minutes to reset. Right. So I'm really glad that you said that. I, I hope that everybody listening right now will pick up a copy of your book. Um, I kind of wanted to get into the book specifically and just kind of your process, like behind the scenes. Um, kind of firstly, like how long did it take you to write this down? Um, as I mentioned <laughs> earlier, I journaled. Um, the book itself took me six years to finish. And part of that, as I know you will relate to, is I continued to relive each of the horrible things that happened. So it was an exhausting emotional process. So for me, some people can you know, pop out a book in three months. That's great. Um, I had to keep putting it away. And then the life intervened. He was still in and out of hospitals. He was still, uh, we, you know, we were moving. There were just times that I had to put the book down. You know, my mother passed away. And then, you know, there's a, there's a scene in here with her that's, I can't read to this day. I can't read without crying. So it took me a long time. It took me six years. Um, and so, so I would say to anyone, be patient, you know, it, it was a labor of love. I knew it would get published. I just had to let go of when, and even though I kept setting deadlines for myself, I had to be flexible with myself and not be so hard on myself. I, I watched friends publish books long before me, and that was hard. That was very hard for me to watch. And I just, that just wasn't my journey. That wasn't my process. So I say that to not give up. Uh, the other part of the process, I hired a writing coach because I needed to be efficient with my time. And I do not regret that. It was, it was an expense, but I don't regret it because she helped me tremendously. Um, as I was writing it, I also started researching, did I want to try to go traditional? Did I want to find an agent? Did I want to self-publish? Did I want a hybrid? These are very big topics. And I talked to a lot of people. I, like I said, I have multiple friends that have published both traditionally and um, hybrid and self-publish. And that's a really individual decision that everybody has to make for whatever reason that they have to make it. Ultimately, for me, I decided I get paid more per book by self-publishing than I would from traditional publishing. And traditional publishing is not like it used to be. We're here. Very rarely do you get a $10,000 advance and then they are, oh, they're going to do everything for you. That's that's still happens, but it's it's not rare. You have to have a ton of followers. They want to know how many followers you have and how are you going to be promoting and what are you bringing to the table? It's, it's very different. So everybody's dream is to be traditionally published because we all want to you know, think that we're that good, that an agent, people are going to be fighting over us. For me, it was more important that the book get published and that I get, get it into the hands of people that I can help through, through my words, through our story. And I wished I had had, as we talked about earlier, I wished I had had resources. I wish I was, I don't know if this happened to you guys. I was given a three ring binder, a three inch like here, 
could you give me the the, the synopsis of what's in this? Because I do not have time yep. to read a three-inch thick binder. That's right. A binder from 1970s with outdated, <laughs> the outdated yeah. graphics, the outdated information. It was, the very, it was crazy. It was yeah. crazy. I did put a resource at the back of my book that gives some of the things that we've talked about. It gives us, you know, core energetics and, you know, check out these, these, I polled people on, I'm on a couple of Facebook groups, quadriplegics, paraplegics. I highly recommend those as well. And I polled them and I said, you know, what are the places that you found across, um, I guess basically it was the United States. It doesn't matter. And so I put a few of those in, you know, if you're in an area. Um, I tried to answer some of the questions that I had that I didn't have anyone to ask. Um, so, you know, that was, that was, that's all been part of the process of the book, but it was, it was very hard to write. It was very painful. And part of it, what happened to me, we talked earlier about all those emotions and getting bottled up is, I took the steam off the top, but I never really got to grieve until after my husband and I were living together again, after we had decided we were going to try this. And, and during that time, he, he, he knew how much he had hurt me. He was off the drugs. He had just, you know, he wanted to make amends. And one of his living amends to me was he would hold space for me to cry and be angry and, and do whatever I needed to do to get those feelings out. And that was that was a key part in us healing some of that and still being together as a couple, that he, he allowed me to do that. Wow, that's amazing. And so, so beautifully said is being able to come back together as a team after the dust settles. And that's something that I think anybody listening should keep in mind whether you're a new injury or you're going through a really, you know, you're going through that very uncertain space that you're navigating is that it is possible to come back together after shit hits the fan, so to speak. So it is possible. And also that no matter what happens that, that you're going to be okay. You know, I had to come to that realization that with or without my husband, I was going to be okay. You know, there had to be that separation of, of being. We're not the same person. And, and I want to encourage women, you know, to understand that too, that, that they will be okay no matter what happens. Um, you know, have a strong enough core to, and, and boy, this, this makes us strong. If, if, we, do, if we hang in there, I, I think you'll agree that... Uh, that these kind of situations can make us strong and they can make um, our relationships stronger too. That's what I have found anyway. Love that. Just such wisdom. Uh, anyone out there listening to this right now who feels connected, please listen to what she's saying. <laughs> we interview a lot of people. We've been around the block for the, you know, the past six years we've been in this community and this woman is extremely wise and Try not to think you know better. She she's uh, she's legit. She knows what she's saying. It, I hope everyone follows some of this advice. It's really really important. So, yeah, um, Angela, if 
someone wanted to purchase your book or wanted to learn more about you, could you let them know, just let our listeners know where they would find your book and how they can get in contact with you? Sure. It's called Better Than Before. There are two. I must caution you. Note to self, if you ever write a book, make sure there's no other books that are titled the same as yours. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but mine is better than before one couple's journey after a tragic accident, Angela DeChico, and it is on Amazon right now. So it's a Kindle version as well as a paperback version. If anyone would like a book f- directly from me that I would autograph to them, they can reach out to me at the Italian or they can email me at a DeChico D I. C-I-C-C-O, author, at gmail.com. And, and uh, you know, we'll be happy to figure out um, how to get that book out to you with, uh, with an autograph. And, you know, also, if, if anyone would like us, my husband and I, or me alone to speak and, you know, help other people in any way we can, you know, we are really happy to do that. Incredible. And also, we will be giving away a copy of your book with the release of this podcast. So thank you so much for your beautiful offering for that. And of course, um, please stay tuned for that. We are delighted to have had the opportunity to have you on today. And like Brooke had already mentioned, some of the wisdom that you were sharing that we wish we knew from the very beginning. Could could I say one more thing before we go off? Absolutely. Running out of time, but if I could leave everyone with one piece of advice that I learned that night with uh, Sue, or that morning with Sue, the nurse, and she said to me, "Don't do everything for your 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 spouse or your partner. Don't do everything for them." that takes care of you and them don't enable basically is is uh is what she was saying and i had to i had to learn that i had to learn that you know my husband um had to learn that he can do he can do more than he thought he could and i encouraged him to do that i have to agree with you a hundred percent some beautiful wisdom there. So once again, friends, thank you for taking the time to be part of the Wags of SCI podcast today with your hosts, Selena Pauly and Brooke Paget. And thank you very, very much for coming on and sharing your beautiful story today, Angela. So until next time, take care of yourself and love each other. Cheers. Cheers.